pretty powerful. It's amazing when we just kind of change things up a little bit, slow it down, then plug it, and just focus in on one event, one moment. Um, and it's weird, it's weird to greet people on this day. We're talking to a couple of people and they walked in, it's like, what do you say? Like, you don't say happy, good Friday, you say good, good Friday, I remember Marty said that. But there is something, there's a song a um, long time ago when I was youth, first starting as a youth pastor and we didn't have anybody else to lead worship, so I had to lead, um, which was interesting. But there's this song that and it was titled Beautiful Scandalous Night. And I've never forgotten that title because I think that describes Good Friday the best. It's this beautiful scandalous event that if you just stop and pause at any point today, like about nine, I went right now. Like right now you're being attached to a cross. And it wasn't until about 4.30 I went like, oh my gosh, I bet, I bet you've been taken down from the, from the cross and maybe you've been starting to be prepared by a couple guys and like all these things started going through my mind, but I, it's weird for part of the day I didn't think about it. And then do you ever feel guilty if you don't? And I, I don't know that we're supposed to. Like he didn't pay all that so we'd be guilty, but at least to come together and to remember what it is that he did, it's very solemn. It's more of a, it's like a sacred solemn time. And we want to keep it that way, but we want to also continue with the I Am series. And it, it fits with where we're going tonight. And then at the end of the message, I'll instruct and move us into a time of communion as we go back into singing. And so the communion elements are in the back on both sides. So let's pray, and we're going to jump into this, and then we'll get back into the time where we're just going to focus again and singing to Jesus. But let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for what an evening so far. And to pause to remember, Jesus, what you did. A couple thousand years ago, you took a cross and you took everything that came with it in order that we wouldn't have to take it. And so we pause in our day to remember that. And we thank you, knowing that it's out of your grace. It wasn't out of our effort or out of our earning anything. It was your pure grace. We deserve nothing. But you, you gave yourself. What a sacrifice. So I pray that as we focus in just for a little bit on your word, Holy Spirit, take control this time. Thank you that you want to meet us where we are. Get me out of the way. May we only hear you. We pray in Jesus' name. Anybody who agrees says, amen. One of the, or the three of the final words that Jesus spoke, it is finished. And when you look at it, there's actually a, a phrase that he uses before that. He says, makes this statement. This is the one he screamed out. Because you remember when, the, when everything went dark at noon, everything went dark like midnight. So when he looked at, the, he, it's like he looked up to heaven and said, or he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's one of the only times I can see in the gospel accounts when Jesus prays to the Father where he doesn't call him Father. Every other time he prays, he calls him Father except this moment. And so I'll read, I'll read scholars and I'll read their, their commentaries. And they say, well, what he's doing, he's trying to get them to think of a psalm. I think it's Psalm 22. And it's, mess, it's this messianic psalm. And I'm just sitting there going, really, from the cross? He's trying to think, I want to make sure you think of that psalm. Or was the psalm written because this is what Jesus would experience? See, I'm convinced in that moment, why did he call him God and not Father? Because I believe in that moment he, he became the, the target of the full and complete wrath of God. And so he called out to him as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing what we should have experienced. 
And then about three, he yells out, he screams out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't it amazing that at one moment he calls him my God, and the next moment he's calling him Father. The one where he felt forsaken, he's now entrusting his soul to him. Why? Because it was finished. He finished it. It was done. And it wasn't just like it was, a, like it was just something that he accomplished. This was a promise that was to be fulfilled. This was something that was supposed to be, I mean, God set this up hundreds of thousands of years or before time began, but when he created Ab and Eve and they sinned in the garden and all this was put in motion, this was a promise that he was here to fulfill. And approximately 700 years before this Good Friday happened, Isaiah, Isaiah penned this, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's a powerful word, that last phrase, or that last word, healed. That we are healed by his wounds, we're healed. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years, give or take, before, the, before what Jesus took on that cross, Isaiah penned it out. And yet no one in that time would have known what Isaiah was talking about. It's not quite, there's something coming, but we don't know what it is. And when you look at Isaiah 53, it's like the Old Testament's gospel message. It's talking about Jesus. And to think that this was penned and Jesus still came and Jesus walked toward Jerusalem and Jesus walked toward the cross. No one pushed him. Do you ever notice that? No one pushed him. He actually went and they had to make a way because the crowds were trying to get in to pull his beard out and smack him around. But he kept walking. No one pushed him because he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I'll take it back up. So this was him voluntarily giving himself up. So we go from Isaiah down or back into John chapter 12. And listen to what, what this account is about. Chapter 12 verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we hear that phrase and go, This is it. I guess this is a great moment. But that's not what he's talking about here. He says, The hour has come. What's the hour he's speaking about? Guys, for three years, he's been doing ministry, kind of walking freely wherever he wants to go, all coming up and culminating to what it is that he was about to do. This was the hour for which he came. This was the moment. I mean, yes, we learn all these things about what Jesus is like in those three years that have recorded about Christ. We understand a little bit more about what God's like. But all of it was pointing to him coming to do this one thing. So he says, the hour has now come that the Son of Man may be glorified, and yet Jesus is being glorified. It was connected to his being crucified. Guys, that's humbling for me. Because you picture God, I want you to be glorified in my life. Be glorified, be glorified. And Jesus is going, it's time for me to be glorified, which means I'm going to be humiliated. And I'm going to be tortured, and I'm going to be crucified, and... And I'm going to experience the wrath of God. That's part of the glory that Jesus took on. And then he says this in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So in other words, he knows part of, the, part of this me being glorified is my death. And I must, I must die. Why? So that there's greater things that come from it. 
And so we pick up in John chapter 15, and Jesus makes this next I am statement. I am the true vine. Why would he say I'm the true vine? Because everyone had these copycat things. And we kind of do today. It's like, okay, where do you find your source from? Like, what are you connected to? What is your life about? And Jesus is saying, okay, I'm the true vine. I'm the one that gives sustenance to your life. I'm the one that gives fulfillment to your life. I'm the one. Like, it's really all about me. And this isn't arrogance. This is just truth. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. You got to connect to me. Because all these other things will leave you what? Wanting. So he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine, the vine dresser. Well, what's the vine dresser's responsibility? What's, what's he do? Well, verse 2, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And we sit there and go, well, of course, and I'm so glad that pruning, because I've, I, some of you guys might be gardeners. I'm not a gardener. I'm, I, don't understand, I don't like it. I, I, maybe I'll just be honest. I don't like it. I like to eat the things from the garden, but I want somebody else to do it. But here, when I read up on it, I thought, okay, so I better kind of have a clue about what this, what this is like. Guys, you realize that there's people who have this job vine dresser, that they work the vineyards, and those who go around and they prune the vineyards, at some places, they go through a three to four year training period. Because if they, if they, if they cut too much or too little, then the, vi- the vineyard, sometimes the vineyard can actually die. And so they'll, they'll, it's, like it's, it's blowing my mind as I was reading it. They would walk up to this, to this vineyard and they'd start just plucking away. They'd even take the, the branches that have huge things of grapes and cut it off and throw it to the side. And, and I would be sitting there going, that's the part you leave. But the reason they had to cut those big parts away because they were taking so much of the quote-unquote life from the vine that the rest of the branches couldn't grow. And so when you see Jesus say, hey, kid, the part of the job of the, vin- of the vine dresser is to what? To prune you. And the thing about pruning is it hurts. Right? It hurts. And so most of the time when we start to hurt, we start to wonder where God's at. And yet if a vine dresser is in there pruning, where is the vine dresser? He's right next to it. And where is God with us when he's pruning us? He's right with us. In in, in verse 3. He says, already, and he's speaking to just his disciples as he's saying this, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. The word clean means blameless, innocent, unstained from the guilt of anything. He's like, you're already free from guilt because of what it is that I've spoken to you. And the application that we can take is this. If you're a follower of Christ, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you're guiltless. Like, hold on to that. You're not just guiltless until tomorrow, until you screw up tomorrow. I mean, you're guiltless. It's as if you've never done anything and even tomorrow's is taken care of. Because of what it is that God has spoken to us. And Jesus is looking at his disciples going, you're blameless because of the word that I have spoken to you. So again, we look at Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We're healed. You go to First Peter chapter 2, and Peter's writing about it. It kind of quotes this part of the passage. Verse 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might, here's our response to what it is that Jesus did, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So yes, what we do matters. But I'm already clean because of what it is that Jesus said. So the things that I do, the things that we do, is because we're clean, not so that we can become clean. 
So what it is that Jesus accomplished is so much greater than we could ever imagine. Like, I don't have to go before God and say, is, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Because in reality, outside of Jesus, the answer is no. But for God so loved the world that while we were enemies, he died for us. I mean, the love of God, the grace of God is so beyond us. And so I don't have to walk before God and go, God, am I good enough today? Because I belong to Jesus, because of what Ephesians says, that I'm in Christ, the way the Father looks at the Son is the way that he looks at us, if you have a, if you have a relationship with Jesus. As holy as Jesus is, is as holy as you are. I mean, that's how he sees us, that you're clean because of what it is that God has said, not based upon what it is that you do. And some may say, oh, some people might take advantage of grace. If people, honestly, if people hear that story, they go, oh, now I can sin. Guys, if that's your attitude, it's probably not Jesus that you ever surrendered to. If that's your first response to that, is now I can go do what I want? Friends, if it's really Jesus who you surrendered to and the Holy Spirit's in you, there should be this change that's happened. Guys, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's easier to get people to just behave. Behave, just do what you're told. It's easier to do that. You just miss out on the joy of grace. You miss out on the joy of walking with God and trying to understand what he might be saying. Did I really hear you right? Did I not? How do I do this? It's like sometimes it's just not sure. But the beauty of grace is that, hey, um, maybe it's like this. And now I haven't used this for a while, I don't think, but... For parents, you remember when your kids were little, if, they, when, when, if you got, you've got older ones now, but they'd color a picture for you and it was horrible. Like, I mean, if you really, like, let's be honest. I mean, like, you would never say that to them in that moment, but it's not like people would ever buy it from you, right? It's not an artistic piece going, oh, what is that worth? Because in your mind, you're going, it's, it's worth everything because your kid did it for you. But if it was somebody else's kid and they, like, they showed it to you, you're like, wow. Those lines aren't optional. Like, that's what you're supposed to stay in. And so when a little kid, and you get them a little something to color, and they just pick one crayon, like one color, and they hold it like a dagger. You know, it's not like they're not trying to be artistic. They just kind of, they just go. And the end of it's like a green dog. And they go, oh, and then they come in, they say, I colored you a picture. But you don't look at them and say, what is this? Like, you're four, step it up. Right? You don't do that. Because it's your kid, you say, absolutely. This is the most precious thing ever. And where does it go? On your fridge. For everyone to see. Guys, I'm not saying that, like, what we do doesn't matter. Because you look at the passage. In in 1 Peter 2, he bore sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We're supposed to live in a way that's different. But man, it's hard sometimes, right? And there's always grace. It's like God, I can present my life to God, and he sees all the things that are outside the line, and he goes, yeah, but this is precious, you're mine. This goes on my fridge. That's the beauty of grace. We can get so caught up in the lines that we forget the joy of just coloring. I want to challenge you. Like, get a coloring page from the internet, download it, 
and color. And you're like, I don't have time. I don't have time to do that. That is childish. I know, but what if all of a sudden in that moment you're reminded of the beauty of grace? And what if you went outside the line? Unless you're just sitting there going, I don't, I, I don't like the line. I'm out of line. I hate the line. Bam, and you just go for it. But if you're just, you're just doing what you can because you just love to color. Maybe that's the point. Maybe we've got to learn how to love to color more than just presenting the perfect thing. Like, do we love to color? Do we love to live? Is that even part of it anymore? God's pruning us, and I know that that's difficult. God has declared us righteous in his sight because he's declared it. You surrendered to Jesus, and you're his. And so what's our response to that? Well, we continue, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. See, I'm not just making it up. As, as many years as I've been saying this to our community, abide. Learn to abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. It's not me coming up with it. This is Jesus' invitation. Abide in me. Remain in me. This is, the word means to be constantly in the presence of, to never leave. So this isn't a, I had a quiet time in the morning and then I got to live my life for the day. It's like, no, I spent time with Jesus in the word in the morning. And then the next thing I went to did, I went to work out and Jesus helped me out because he knew I was going to hurt on this one. And then after that, I had to go deal with my dog because he knows I need grace for that. So it's like every moment of every day, I'm in the presence of Jesus, abiding in Jesus, not just checking the box off as if that's what God actually came to pay for. Guys, that's just religion. But this constant awareness, this constant, I'm abiding, I'm remaining with Jesus. And then Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. So if I'm called to constantly remain in him, that means he's constantly remaining with me. Guys, that's mind-blowing. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I don't know, I love that verse. Because for those of you who are perfectionists, you won't like it. For those of you that can handle it all, you hate that verse. Because here's pretty much Jesus is saying, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do what it is that I'm calling you to do by yourself. But here's the joy of it. He never expected you to. He never expected you to do it alone, ever. He says, you abide in me, and I'll abide in you. You can't do anything apart from the vine. It's like we're the branch, we're not the vine. But apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That's, that's not a slam. Guys, that should give us peace. So God, you're not expecting me to do this by myself? No, no. Guys, why do you think you have the Holy Spirit who's called the helper? It's in his name. If he's the helper, his job is to help. So ask for it. That's constantly to be in need of him and that's what he wants. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We will be different. We will be changed. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A while back, I read this book called Abiding at the Feet of Jesus by a young guy named Nate Sweeney. And he made this statement when he was looking through the Beatitudes. It's in that context. He says the goal of the Beatitudes, which is Jesus' first preaching message, give or take, in Matthew, uh, it's found in Matthew 5 to 7. He says the goal of the Beatitudes is to pierce the heart of, religious, of a religious, works-based, self-righteous culture and replace it with an intimate, abiding relationship with a living God. Yes. To get out of the 
the tasks and the list here. I did, I did, I did, I did. I accomplished, accomplished, accomplished. And Jesus is going, hey, I might call you to do things, but your worth and value is not based on how you did with those things. It's based on the fact that I love you. And I want you to do those things not to prove a point. I just want you to do those things with me. The invitation with him, not by ourselves, with him. See, Christ died to bear much fruit. We are that fruit. We're the recipients of what it is that he sacrificed himself for. And we're called to bear much fruit, but we can't do it unless we abide in Jesus. And so Jesus has made us reliant upon him. So we go back to John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I wrote this in my notes. I wrote, Jesus came while we were apart from him to bring us close. He died that we might live. He was forsaken by the Father so that we wouldn't have to be. He took it all so we could be with him. That's the heart behind God. <clears throat> In 1820, there's this uh, little family that were living in a village 50 miles north of New York City. And they had this little baby girl. She was born on the 24th of March. And they, they, uh, they nicknamed her Fanny, Fanny Crosby. At, at, at the age of six weeks old, she caught this cold and developed this inflammation of the eyes. And so they took her to the doctor, and no one's quite sure. Some, of, some accounts that I read was what the doctor told them to do caused her to go blind. And others have said, well, she had this de- degenerative heart, or not heart, degenerative eye problem, that she would have been blind either way. But either way, at six months old, um, I'm sorry, at six weeks old, she went blind. At six months old, her dad died. And yet at age eight, she wrote her first poem. Guys, I don't, I don't even know what I could have read when I was eight, let alone read a poem. And that would be one of the over 8,000 poems or hymns that she would write in her lifetime. She was also a missionary, and she's blind. She's a missionary, she, and, then she, she, and, she, um, and she got married at some point in her life. And she lived to be 95, give or take. Well, 90, 95. So give or take, to get 8,000 or more hymns or poems written in her lifetime, starting at the age of eight, she had to write 88 poems or hymns per year. Man, that's a heck of a hobby. But she's world-renowned now. I know that hymns, for some, it's like, well, I don't even know what those are. We think that, like, um, I love you, Lord, is a hymn. Or... Um, I mean, some of these older, it's not a hymn, but maybe you remember this one for those that kind of grew up in the church for a while. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life, our redemption to win, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Isn't that beautiful? And then all of a sudden, as I stop there, something like, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth. It's like you're ready to go into the next part. That's one of many, and she is known in the Christian community and Christian culture. She has impacted so much of Christendom. And yet, about her blindness, she would write these words, and it was so telling when I saw when I read it, when I read it and found it today. She said, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for the dispensation. Wow. 
She goes on to say, if perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. And here's why. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. Like, how do you get to that point? Where it's like, whatever comes, it's like, God, to you be the glory. Your providence is amazing. That she could actually, in her blindness, pen the words of over 8,000 poems and hymns all about the glory and beauty of Jesus. And then to pen these words of saying, if God said, I'll give you your sight tomorrow to hear go, I don't want it. Like, I don't, want, I don't want to see because I don't think that I would have the same kind of life. I've been able to sing about and write about Jesus because I, I'm not as distracted. How do you get to that point? I sit there and go, I can never be like that, except isn't that example of God pruning? That's God's pruning. And this is the outcome of a life that's well lived. And so what it is that we face, friends, we have to remember that as you're being pruned, realize that there's a Jesus who experienced more than we ever could. And friends, if I can entrust my soul to God, trusting that I'm right before God and I will stand before him all by the grace and mercy of God, all by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast, if I can truly believe that, then I can trust God with the pruning. And my only job in that time is to abide is to remain, obey, follow, be with. Don't freak out just yet. If you don't see the good in it yet, it's because he's not done with it yet. He's just gonna keep pruning. Trust him in the process. Even when it feels like, man, he took so much. I know, but it's for our good. It's for our good. And so as the worship team comes back up, Good old Fanny also said this. This is this one. I'm, I can't wait to see the video of what it was like when she got to see Jesus. Because here's what she wrote. She said, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. You imagine being blind all your life. And then the first thing that she sees is Jesus. Come on. It's like she wouldn't sit there and go, I didn't get to see a sunset. I didn't get to see a sunrise. He's like, hello. She's like, the first thing that I'll get to see that will, gla- I love that way that she would, that will gladden my sight will be the face of my Savior. Friends, hang in there. Hang in there. If you're experiencing a, a more difficult time of pruning, trust him. He hasn't forgotten you. How do I know? How do I know he'll come through? Because he took a cross. Like he took a cross. Why would he take the cross and then forget about the rest? If he took the cross, friends, you can, you can trust him with the rest of it. He took a cross as this declaration. Trust me. L- follow me. Love me. Because isn't that God's declaration back to us? This is how much God loves us. So last passage, we'll repeat 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In other words, Jesus isn't done looking after you yet. He's not finished. It didn't just stop at the cross and we'll see him one day. He is still the shepherd and he's still the overseer of all of us. In just a moment, I'll close this in prayer, but uh, like I said, community is in the back. All that we ask here is that you're a follower of Christ. You don't have to be a part of this church community, but all we ask is that you're a follower of Jesus if you take the elements. And how we do it here is you can take, uh, you can take communion whenever you want. So don't, don't wait for me to come back up and lead us. It's just, we're still going to be in a community, but you have to ask the Lord first and foremost, God, is there anything in my life that's sinful to you? Am I in rebellion against you? And then just be quiet before him and let the Holy Spirit convict if necessary. And for some, you said there's nothing. Okay, great. And for others, of you, a thought might pop up and you got to deal with it. Just agree with him. You're right. That's it. And don't feel guilty. Be grateful for his grace and deal with it. And then we remember when we take the, the little bread, we remember that's his body that was broken for us. And we take the cup and we take the juice, we remember that's his blood shed for us. For what? For the forgiveness of sin. We take that in remembrance of what it is that he did. Does that make sense of what, how we're going to roll with that tonight? Okay, let me pray us out, and we'll jump into this continued time of worship. Jesus, again, we thank you. We thank you for your death and what it means. We thank you that you died in our place. You died for us and because of us but you willingly laid down your life and experienced experience what it was like to be forsaken by God so that we wouldn't have to. And for that, we say thank you. Thank you. And Holy Spirit, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, I pray that you would convict us of sin and that we would confess it and repent from it and then take with joyful and grateful hearts as we remember what it is that you did. So God, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us and your care for us, your concern for us. God, in the rest of this evening, God, be pleased. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you more than you know. <laughs>